0: We get the opportunity to kind of move forward in our thinking on this issue of uh, human sexuality from a distinctively biblical worldview, to recognize that our world and society today is is trying to take uh, the narrative of what human sexuality is and to rewrite it, that our popular culture today uh, is, uh, is wanting to communicate something that is different than what the Bible clearly teaches in terms of sexuality. We had the great privilege on Monday, didn't we, uh, to look at God's word and to see the design of sexuality that God has given to his creation that is singularly and exclusively found between husband and wife. Man and woman. And that as we looked at uh, that passage there in the beginning of our Bibles, uh, in the created order itself, that we explored and looked at our God who fashioned and created man and woman, and for that to be expressed and known uh, together in union as husband and wife. But then we realize that in just the next chapter, that in Genesis chapter three, that the created world as humanity knew it changed. That sin entered into the Garden of Eden and that uh, with it came uh, catastrophic implications. That that which was created and designed, that which had Order now had disorder, and it impacted humanity in every way possible. And as we look at the narrative in Genesis 2, that we see that that sin is comprehensive in its impact on humanity, and certainly that that involves human sexuality as well. So we now live in a fallen world, and this fallen world uh, is. Uh, is impacted in every way you can imagine in terms of sinful nature. And that impacts, in turn, sexuality. And so as we look at this um, as this topic of biblical sexuality or human sexuality from a biblical perspective, we're going to be looking at now what, what does this world look like with a broken sexuality, a disordered sexuality. Sexuality, And in particular, living in the society that we do, uh, that it is everywhere that we can see. And specifically, what I want to speak to us about is the disordered sexuality of homosexuality. It is the topic of our day. It is, uh, it is a part of our national narrative now. And, and the idea that, that the cultural majority in issues of uh, sexual identity and, uh, and sexual expressions are now being redefined. But we need to understand that this is not a new issue. And that the Bible clearly explains to us. Uh, that what defines human sexuality can never be defined by a cultural majority, but only can be defined clearly within the Word of God itself. So we realize that what's happening in our society today, which, which seems to be coming at a, at a lightning pace that the cultural awareness of what human sexuality is has been uh, has been rearranged and redefined and and really propagated as something different than what the bible has uh, but we realize that this uh, that this cultural shift is something that isn't new it's not that the, the, the issue of homosexuality or same-sex marriages is somehow this new idea that's come on to the scene of human thought, but rather it, is, uh, it has been all the way back in the brokenness and the disorder of sexuality that comes right out of Genesis 3. Turn your Bibles to Romans 1. And you can see this here uh, clearly narrated that the progression that has moved to what we would see as uh, homosexuality is something that didn't begin with that sexual expression but has started back uh, where God himself has brought judgment upon sinful humanity uh, and the cumulative nature of that will result in uh, brokenness in every way possible including sexuality. Romans 1.18 says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And the rest of this passage, verse 19 all the way down through 20 uh, through 30 is talking about that there is this great exchange that happens under the wrath of God. In verse 19 it says, for what can be known about God is plain to them Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but rather became futile in their thinking and foolish in their hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise... Uh, They became fools. And then it begins to move through that from this posture, from this posture of rejecting the truth of God, what has been clearly communicated and clearly displayed, that the suppressing of that truth meant that they began to exchange God's glory for other things. Exchanging the truth of what God has given to them for other things. And you can see there uh, in the rest of this chapter that they exchanged worship of the creator for worship of the created. You can see that in verses 21 and 23. You can see in 24 and 25 that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And over and over again in this passage, you can see that God gave them over, gave them over, gave them over in judgment, gave them over in judgment. That because sinful humanity had rejected what was given to them in the word of the living God, and exchanged that for lies, exchanged that to worship something else, that God in his judgment allowed sinful humanity to move and to express itself into its fullest extent. And that's really what the implications of sin is. It's, a, it's the judgment of God and, and allowing sinful humanity to, uh, as it rejects his God, he moves into judgment and, and that includes sexuality. And as you look in verse 26, you can see that here. So this idea of judgment, this idea of the impact of sinful humanity upon themselves, that it moves into not just their thinking, not just their worship, but now into their own sexuality. In verse 26, it says this, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. They suppressed the truth and righteousness, and now God is judging them. How did he judge them? He gave them up to dishonorable passions for women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their nature. That this, this judgment that the giving over of sinful humanity to themselves as an expression of God's judgment upon them for suppressing the truth that was clearly given to them was completely comprehensive and included their sexuality and specifically in this passage, the judgment of giving them over to homosexuality. Don't we live in a society today that models that we can see this expression of? We don't see that. We can look at, uh, we can look clearly at verse 32. That it moves through and it says all of these things, all of these things that have happened in verse 32. Though they knew God's decree, sinful humanity, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That we live in a broken world. We live in a, in a, in a world that, is, that has been given over in judgment by God as a result of sinful humanity and that it's comprehensive. Broken sexuality is not an exclusive addendum to sinfulness of man, but rather it is included in what the implications are of our own sinful humanity. So as we think about the topic of homosexuality, let's make sure that we put it within its right context. It's not outside of or different from the brokenness of man, but rather homosexuality is an expression of the brokenness of sinful humanity. So my audience today as we speak about this issue of homosexuality, is not to speak to the gay Christian, it's not to proclaim within the public square, but rather it is to speak to you, the students at the Master's College, and to give to you, to remind all of us the truth that's found within God's word so that in a society that is wanting to redefine human sexuality and to rewrite the narrative of biblical, of morality, that we can look upon those things with courage, with strength, with compassion and love that God's word defines human sexuality differently. And that we can look upon the sinfulness of homosexuality and to with real clarity in the midst of a cultural majority that's against it to be able to live rightly and honoring to our God. So as we think about that, as we think about how to move in, we have to recognize first and foremost that, uh, that our, um, that we have to uh, start off with a couple of presuppositions. The first one is this, is that we recognize that the Word of God is authoritative and that the Word of God is sufficient to deal with and to address every issue of life and godliness. That 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that, that the word of God, that it's profitable, that it's relevant, that it's breathed out by God and that it's given to us and that it's useful for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. The word of God is not a distant book when it comes to the issue of homosexuality, but rather it directly applies and speaks to it with the very words of God. Not only does it declare and instruct, but it also, the word of God allows our hearts to be transformed. Uh, turn in your Bibles to, uh, to 2 Peter 1. Look at this passage together. By way of our presuppositions, moving into this topic of disordered sexuality expressed in homosexual desires and actions, looking to our presupposition of the word of God itself, Let's read Second Peter 1, three through10. says this it says, "Blessed be the God, our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy." Has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable and defiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you by god 's power, right? You move through these, see I 'm reading first Peter, that is' in second Peter. Wasn't that a great passage, though? I was preaching it. <laughs> had absolutely nothing to do with what we 're talking about other than God reigns. Amen, let 's close in prayer, right? I was getting all worked up. It was preaching to me. Anyway. (laughs) Let's look to a passage that directly relates to what we're talking about. (laughs) 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1, verse 3. His divine power that we just referenced in 1 Peter 1. His divine power, okay, has granted to us all things, That pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. That's the word of God itself, okay? That so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Did you catch that? The word of God, the great precious promises allow us to taste of the divine nature and to escape the corruption of the world because of sinful desire. The word of God is relevant and the word of God speaks not only to the issue of homosexuality, but also how to bring hope and change to an ordered sexuality that will bring honor and glory to our God. So the word of God presuppositionally uh, declares to us and gives us the guidelines to thinking through this issue of homosexuality. Secondly, we need to recognize by a presuppositional understanding is that God is sovereign that God is over all things, that God is in control of everything. Romans eleven thirty six 36 states that, for from him and through him are, two thi- are all things. And, and in, that, in that, that he is working all things together for his own glory and will one day write everything in a new creation that will be for his people for all eternity that there is a plan of redemption, that there is is an answer to sin and the brokenness of this world. And it comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ who will one day come back and create a new heaven and a new earth that we might all be a part of where there is no more sin and every tear will be wiped away. So when we talk about the issue of homosexuality, it's not something that's out there. It's not something that's out there. But rather, the issue of homosexuality impacts us all, doesn't it? There are friends. There are neighbors. There are family members. There are people that we know and that we care for. And so as we're wanting to move towards and to care for our friends in a society that's rejecting God's word, how then do we move towards Those who are dealing with the issue of homosexuality in a way that has hope and biblical clarity and the the reality that they are not um, captured by and enslaved to their sin. Well, the way that we can look at the issue of homosexuality then is that we have to define first and foremost what the Bible says about homosexuality. So we need to spend some time looking at that together and reminding ourselves of these truths um, as we look at the Bible, it says this about homosexuality: uh, that the Bible clearly defines homosexuality as sin, and that it is included in um, sexual immorality. When we talk about the brokenness or the disorder of sexuality, that it includes homosexuality, the Bible clearly defines uh, the Bible. Uh, the Bible clearly defines homosexuality as sin, and it says nothing positive or good about it. The first thing that we want to identify about what the Bible says about homosexuality is this, is that homosexuality is against God's design. And we spent some time talking about that on Monday, that Genesis 1 and 2, that God created them, male and female, in complementary roles as husband and wife. Matthew 19, 1 through 19, Hebrews 13, 4, all reiterate this overarching affirmation that the whole of the Bible resonates that sexual intimacy and design was created between man and woman within the exclusive confines of marriage. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 gives even more clarity to it. It says this, it is the will of God for you not to engage in sexual immorality, but rather to flee it. That the only pursuit of Of human sexuality that's been designed and created by God is within the context of man and woman within marriage. And the Bible is very clear that anything outside of that is sin. And the call of the believer then out of 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is for our sanctification. The will of God then is for us to flee sexual immorality, anything outside of that. But even more specifically, the Bible states that homosexuality is not only against God's design, but it's also against God's decree. The Bible clearly states that homosexuality is a sin. Uh, Genesis 19, 1 through 29, uh, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, 13, and Judges 19, 20 through 24, that the Old Testament narrative and the law decree that homosexuality is an abomination to the Lord. It's not exclusive to the Old Testament. The New Testament uh, decrees this as well. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and 1 Timothy 1.10 says uh, again and again that, that, that sexual, um, sexual relations that is expressed in homosexual desires and acts is a perversion and the practicers will not inherit the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, uh, in the Greek, In the Greek, the Greek construction there to describe the issue of homosexuality within the passage that I I mentioned are also found in the Septuagint translation of Leviticus 18 and 20. It was very clear what the New Testament writers were speaking of. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, it describes in very uh, vivid description that homosexual acts is what they are speaking of there. So the Bible is clear, it even ends, the canon of scripture ends in Revelation 21.8 that says the final judgment of Christ will come upon those who are sexually immoral and it includes homosexuality. Clearly the revisionists, right? The revisionists try to, to, uh, to to find ways to make the Bible not say what it clearly declares and so they say that, that, that the moral law, uh, excuse me, that the Old Testament law doesn't apply anymore for today and that the kind of sexual homosexuality that was referred to in the New Testament is a narrow definition and it doesn't apply to the expressions of homosexuality today. But revisionists have to work very hard to be able to move away from what the Bible clearly states in the text, that homosexuality is a sin and has occurred the judgment of God. If you'd like to explore a little bit more about that and, and to, and to um, explore those passages even further, uh, the simplest ex- explanation that I've seen uh, in recent times is that Kevin DeYoung wrote a book called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? and really defines each one of the words that are in those passages and how revisionists try to translate it differently and gives a very clear and exegetical Um, response. But when we talk about what does the Bible clearly teach, it clearly teaches that homosexuality is against God's design and it's against God's decree, but it also teaches that homosexuality is not outside of God's plan of redemption. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6. that God, in the provision of the new covenant that comes through the words and works of our Lord Jesus Christ, provides redemption to all sinful humanity, including those who are impacted by and expressing the acts and the desires of homosexuality. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 familiar familiar words that echo out of Romans 1 do you not know that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of god do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers no men nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of god but it doesn't end there Verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. That the list of sexual, the sexual immoral that will receive God's judgment includes those who express homosexuality, but through the gospel they are washed and they are declared righteous before him and that can be made new the work of the gospel moves into the brokenness of sinful humanity and directly addresses the issue of homosexuality to say that uh, to say that it doesn't uh, also that there's no hope uh, for those who are those who are impacted by this sin is is to reject Romans 8 look at Romans 8 9 and 10 this is Incredibly relevant to what we're talking about. Romans 8, 9 through 11 says this. says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells within you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That no matter what the expression is of sinful humanity, that there is redemption and there is renewal that is offered through the gospel itself. Someone who has disordered sexual desires, um, are not a subsection of humanity. That somehow that the homosexual is outside of the human order, but rather homosexuality is a part of broken humanity. It's it's an expression of the sinfulness of sin and that in turn, because of that, it can receive forgiveness and redemption and hope in Jesus Christ alone. Can we absorb that reality for a minute? That homosexuality is not some sort of subset of human experience and human existence, but rather is a part of broken humanity. And therefore, because of it, that Christ has come to redeem and to forgive and to give hope in Jesus Christ. With that being the context, looking at specifically what God has to say about the Uh, about homosexuality, let's ask some initial questions then, don't we, Uh, about this issue. The first one is this. Can someone be a homosexual and be a Christian then? If you're engaged with me right now that you're asking that question, can someone be a homosexual and be a Christian? The answer is no, they can't. Because if someone identifies themselves as a homosexual, you can only have one identity. You can't have your identity to be in Christ and then also your identity to be as a homosexual. You can only have one identity. Galatians two twenty says that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. First John three six through ten says, "No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning; is either seen Him or known Him." Romans 6, 1 through 14, the beauty of Romans 6 is this, is that Christ died, therefore we died, and so Christ rose and we rose. The point of Romans 6 is saying this, if you are identified with Christ, you no longer have to sin anymore. Your identity, who you are, is no longer identified as a sinner, but rather one who is joint heirs with Jesus Christ and so to say that someone can be identify themselves as a homosexual that defines their very existence and who they are is to go directly against what we know to be the gospel because our identity as christian is one that is united with Jesus Christ alone and that my sin has been forgiven and I've been justified. And my identity now is no longer as a sinful human being, but one who has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. And that identity then I live out of, right? Here's another question to consider. Where then, where, then does this issue of homosexuality, uh, where does homosexual desire originate? Where does it come from? Well, it, it comes directly out of the heart it does. The Bible's very clear that all sinful action come out of the heart. Jeremiah 17 9 says that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Mark 7 21 through 23 says that it is from the inside that defiles a man, not what comes from the outside. Luke 6 43 through 45 says out of the heart comes both good and evil. So when we look at where does homosexual desire come from, it doesn't come from outside in, but rather from the inside of sinful humanity out. But what about biological or sociological factors? Doesn't that influence uh, someone's homosexual desires? Look, is it a reality that in terms of uh, someone could grow up in, uh, in an environment where, um, where the uh, the expression of homosexual desire might have been introduced at a, at a very young age, or in certain other factors sociologically that that might have an influence upon someone's um, expression of homosexual desire, absolutely, absolutely. There's a lot of factors that uh, that that we can look to that that might cultivate a context where homosexual desire might be expressed, but we have to look at those as secondary implications, not primary implications. Because to say that somebody's environment, to say that somebody's um, predisposition dictates then their morality, usurps the authority of the word of God. But rather to say that it is our sinful desires that then expressed in sociological or or predisposed environments that might cultivate or put a flame to those expressions uh, get expressed in homosexual acts so the question is the objection is that aren't these desires just physiological desires aren't they just coming from a physiological bodies that takes a long time to to really reflect upon but the reality is is that we are embodied souls aren't we that our hearts our hearts and our our inner man dictate at times excuse me don't dictate but they influence our expressions when you're nervous when you're nervous that your body responds to those things that that you're not just a body and you're not just a soul but rather you are an embodied soul And is it a reality that that out of your own desires, that that could have biological implications? Absolutely. But it doesn't, however, give a biological predetermination that then dictates your soul. It doesn't. So we have to understand that uh, that although there are lots of claims for scientific studies uh, that that assert biological or sociological um, factors that, uh, that produce homosexuality, the fact of the matter is, is none of those studies exist. Because if it did exist, we would all know about it. Because the world wants to say that it is not the inner man that determines the outer man, but it's the outer man that determines the inner man. And so we have to take that into account. So when we look at those issues, we have to see them as secondary implications, not primary implications. Well, what about unwanted homosexual desire? The friends that I've had the privilege to walk with, uh, that it, it spans the gamut of this issue, that those who identify themselves as a Christian, those who identify themselves as ones who belong to Jesus Christ, yet still struggle with homosexual desires. That those true believers can have a struggle that is disordered in its sexuality, but their desire is to want to lovingly obey their God, that they wrestle very early on saying, where do these desires come from? How can I deal with them? How can I mortify them if I don't even feel that I'm even responsible for them? Because they come seemingly out of nowhere. Can someone be held responsible for desires that seemingly don't have an origin? Because my friends that I've walked through at times that the most pain comes from that one reality. How can I change if I don't even know where they're coming from? But the fact of the matter is, is that doesn't all sinful humanity have unwanted sinful desires? That come from our hearts, that we don't know where they come from. Sometimes even those desires might be orienting, anger, anxiety, other issues that happen within the heart of man, that, that the origin of them that we can't trace back to a particular choice or time, but yet we are still held responsible. That it is our desires themselves, the evil desires, that are sinful as much as the actions themselves. We can see that further in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, where it, where it describes that, that, that it is not just the expression of broken sexual immorality that will occur sinful judgment upon the Lord, but rather it is within the heart. It is the, it is the sinful desires. It is, it is those uh, broken expressions of sexual immorality within the heart that occurs sinful judgment. James 1 13 through 15 uh, is an expression and an illustration of that fact. Turning your Bibles to there, it'd be helpful for us to review when we're looking at this issue of sinful desire. James 1 13 through 15, it says this Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil because he himself, um, and he himself tempts no one. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The ESV translates it as lust. It's not an amoral desire, but it's an evil desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. When we look at the issue of temptation that we have to recognize out of this passage that that temptation in the end is not exclusively from the outside in, but rather from the authority of this passage says that we are tempted when our desires, our evil desires long for something that is outside of God's decree. This passage attributes temptation itself to each person's evil desire when it's lure away and uh, and enticed to give birth to sin. Something is not enticing. Something is not alluring. If there isn't sinful desire that wants that thing. So even though Jesus Christ himself was tempted in every way, yet without sin, those temptations came from the outside in exclusively. But yet when we speak of temptation, we have to recognize that temptation itself is drawn out by our own sinful desires, which in turn we are accountable for. Sinful desires itself, not just not just the not just the the um, the expression of sinful desire, but actually the the desire itself is sinful. Our president makes this statement, and I think it's very helpful when we talk about this issue of desire and can someone be held accountable for their desires, uh, even though they might not. Um, they might not choose them or they might not be, know their origin. He speaks to this, that there would be no attraction of sin if it were not for man's own sinful lust, which makes evil more appealing than truth, immorality more appealing than purity, the things of the world more appealing than the things of God. We cannot blame Satan, his demons, ungodly people, or the world in general for his own lust. Even more certainly, we cannot blame God. The problem is not the tempter from without, but the traitor within. Why can't Christians just make their own allowance for homosexual desires? Why can't we do that? Why, why can't we just let this be an issue that um, that people just kind of deal with and, and we don't have to address? Why can't we just look at it like uh, like divorce or um, or coveting, or, or other expressions of sinfulness that's maybe more respectable? Can't homosexuality be included in that? Uh, the response to that is, since when should we ever look at sin in a respectable way? When should we ever not mortify sin in its complete totality? When should we ever, why, why should we ever um, not despise what God despises? In every way, in every expression, which includes Sexual immorality. All of the major lists in the Bible that speaks of sinful expressions, Mark 7, Romans 1, Romans 13, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Colossians 3, all of these, every single list has sexual immorality within there. That God takes very seriously sexual immorality as well as he does anger, disobedience, coveting, and so we too should look at this issue with sobriety and biblical clarity. The fact of the matter is, is that the world can offer no hope to the homosexual. Someone who is dealing with the issues of homosexual desires, that the world has no hope for them. As a matter of fact, that suicide rates among 14 to 24-year-olds is highest among homosexuals than any other group in our nation today because there is no hope there is no hope but yet the bible clearly defines that there is hope as we understand as we understand the the disorder of of sexuality and the order that Christ brings to the brokenness of our own souls, that it applies in the comprehensiveness of who we are as the people of God, that it involves the brokenness even of our own sexuality, that Christ comes to bring hope and that there is a place for change and that even within those of us and our friends who are dealing with the implications of of homosexual desires, that there is redemption and hope. So there are a few key components to addressing the heart of this disordered sexuality, and I wanna review them briefly with us so that as we think about and as we compassionately move towards our friends who are dealing with this issue, that we can, that we can apply biblical truth and hope to them in care. The first one is the one that we had mentioned already, that there is a power in our identity in Christ, that as we look at the, the disordered human sexuality that includes homosexual desires and actions, that, that the expression of those who claim Jesus Christ as their identity, that there is power there, like we had mentioned in Romans 6. That the beauty of Romans 6 says that you you are no longer a slave to sin and therefore dealing with whatever brokenness in sexuality, including the issue of homosexual desires. That there can be hope that we've been freed. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says that, that we are to work out our salvation. Why? In the power of the spirit that has been given to us. Romans 8, 31 through 32 says that if God is for us, who can be against us? 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness, in weakness. Our identity in Christ that comes to those who are not just strong, but to those who are broken. And the power and identity comes in the person of Jesus Christ, Hebrews four twelve says that we are to work out our spiritual lives in according to God's word, and that Jesus Christ Himself comes to us and gives us help and grace in our time of need. That to those who are dealing with the issue of homosexual desires, that the blessed hope for change and the hope of of what how they could live in a, in an ordered Humanity comes not by the power of their own will, but by the power of their identity in Jesus Christ. And to say anything less is to say something that is not found in the Word of God. So not only in this, not only in the dynamics of working through and addressing the heart of disordered sexuality, the second one, not only our, our power and our identity in Christ, but also the posture of repentance, the posture of repentance. Ephesians 5 is important in this regard. Turn there. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 speaks, but in verse 3 it says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper for the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. This passage says that sexual immorality is directly connected to our covetousness. That God has designed human sexuality to flourish within the design that God has had within marriage between husband and wife. Anything that's outside of that is wanting something that God has not provided. Sexual immorality at its core is coveting something that God has not given and taking it For your own sinful pleasure and desires. So, the process of change, then, out of Ephesians 5 and the rest of the passage, is saying to repent of that. To say, God, I want something that you have not given to me. And in my evil desires, I want to be satisfied in a sexuality that is different than the ordered sexuality that you have given me. And so I repent of my sin and rather with thanksgiving run to the throne of grace and to pursue desires that are according to your word. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 speaks that godly repentance in the end happens at a heart desire, turning away from sin, understanding that we've sinned before a holy God and then turning away in our desires and actions. The process of change in the issues of broken sexuality happens through a posture of repentance, not through our own willpower, but in our identity in Jesus Christ, coming to the throne of grace and asking for forgiveness. And 1 John 1, 1.9 is, is applied to this case in sexuality as well as it is in everything else. That in 1 John one 9 it says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. And if we say that we have no sin, we're a liar. How much more so is that hope giving to our friends who are dealing with unwanted and and even controlling at times homosexual desires that have no hope for change to say that in your identity in Jesus Christ you no longer need to or have to sin. But rather when you do and those desires that are un and disordered that you can run to the throne of grace and to ask for forgiveness and God will. There is no other way for change. There is no other way for change. In your life and in my life, in the brokenness of what it means to live in a Romans 1 sort of world, the way and the posture for change is through repentance alone that acknowledges God's true and abiding word and to see and to own and to acknowledge and to take responsibility for the brokenness of our desires that draw us into temptation and to confess before a holy God I have sinned and to once again stand before the throne of God and to have the the word and works of Jesus Christ to be attributed that God when he sees that sees his own son So what then is the pathway for change? The pathway for change is is laid out in Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, speaks of setting your mind on the things above, that that we are to hide ourselves, to, to live our lives within our identity within Christ, and that out of that identity, then we are to put off sexual immorality, to put off sin, and to put on righteousness. The road to spiritual growth in this area of maturity is not Something that's instantaneous. Can we acknowledge that? Can we acknowledge that the path of reorienting our sinful nature in accordance to God's word and the power of His Spirit is a process? That it's not instantaneous? That sanctification is progressive? Let there be freedom. Let there be hope that the primary pursuit of the Christian is to daily run to Jesus Christ and to look for his holiness and to allow the cumulative nature of that work to transform our hearts. Let there never be a place of hopelessness in your hearts and in the hearts of our friends who are dealing with homosexual desires, that there is no hope for change. Change might be slow. Change might be fast. It might have a spectrum on it. Is it true that someone who is dealing with uh, with heterosexual desires might someday have and be trans have expressions of their of their identity in Christ be expressed in heteronormative desires? Absolutely, absolutely. Could someone go and get married and have um, have lots of kids and have a family? Absolutely. But there's also a spectrum of change. Could there be someone who would get married and someone would get married and and still and still deal with the artifacts of, of the brokenness of their sexuality and at times would come up in inconvenient times and unwanted times? Yes. Is it also true on the spectrum of sanctification that someone might every day deal with? Unwanted? homosexual desires every day? Yes. Is the point then for those who have homosexual desires to be a heterosexual? Absolutely not. The goal of holiness is the primary goal for all of us who are broken in in our sexuality, broken in our sinfulness, broken in our desires, that the goal is holiness. The goal is not heterosexuality. Will that come? Could that come? Absolutely. But is that the only goal? No. Just like heterosexual immorality the goal is not marriage. But the goal is holiness. So when we speak of the process of change in broken sexuality, we have to remember primarily that the process of change has as its epicenter to be more like Jesus Christ in their holiness. And the spectrum of change is left up to God and his sovereignty as they pursue every day, not, not to pursue... Um, heteronormative desires, but rather to pursue Jesus Christ in loving obedience to Him, which in turn will express itself in right desires, which could include a reorienting of sexual desire. The last two that I want to mention is this: the not only is it in terms of the getting to the heart of homosexuality first and foremost. Uh, The power of our identity in Christ, the, the posture of repentance, this pathway of change, which has holiness as its center, mortifying sin and putting on righteousness, which has as its goal holiness, according to God's word, not as its only goal, reoriented sexuality. But the next one I wanted to talk about is this pursuit of discipleship. That the process of change, getting to the heart of disordered sexuality doesn't happen in isolation. It doesn't happen in isolation. But yet our full commitment to being a disciple of Jesus Christ is one that encompasses everything that, who we are. Not just human sexuality, but our thoughts and desires that our full commitment to Jesus Christ is what it means to be a disciple. And in that commitment, we do that together. That to those who are dealing with the issue of same-sex attraction and homosexual desires, that the process of change is not one that is isolated, but yet it is about the people of God. Read Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 that says, "We We are to meet, not to stop meeting together, but rather to stir up one another towards love and good deeds. Does that not include the brokenness of sexuality? Hebrews, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, that we are to encourage one another. Why? So that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Does that not include sexual immorality? Let the call be to the people of God that we can live and change and we can do that together because it is the word of Christ itself that binds our hearts as we encourage one another to be more like him. And that pursuit of discipleship then gives us perseverance and hope. Be steadfast, immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because your labor is not in vain. Why? Because Christ is coming back. Why? Because Christ is going to redeem you completely. There is a resurrected body that he will renew not only our person to our our ordered state in the garden, but he will actually renew our bodies and renew the earth. Jesus Christ is coming back to redeem us completely. Might that be the cry of our hearts? Not only to one another, but to our friends who are dealing with the brokenness of their sexuality. And let us not let this culture define how we are to live rightly, but rather the Word of God itself, and that it gives us hope and life and change, not in our own efforts but according to the work of Jesus Christ, according to his righteous and holy word. And might we be a community that does that together. Let us pray. I thank you for my friends here. And as they have committed themselves to you, O God, and they have come to this place to learn of you, to learn of your word, that they know that it is not distant from their everyday life. And that I pray, O God, as we have explored and had looked at the dark and hard realities of disordered sexuality, that it might give us all, Lord, a sober reality of our own hearts, that as we deal with the brokenness of our own lives that we in turn might run with hope and bring our friends along with us to submit our hearts to you and to your word knowing that it is you alone who comes to redeem and those of whom you save, you will also sanctify and those whom you sanctify, you will also glorify because that exalts your name above every name and that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord. Might we live rightly in that manner and compassionately care for one another this day, accordingly. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, everybody.